Good morning. We are in Romans 6 today. So if you would open there in your Bible, you'll be able to read along with us. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use a pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, just take that one. It will be yours. Aaron, don't go anywhere. I see you. <laughs> All right. I, I want to. The reason I call Aaron out, I wouldn't normally do that, except that today is the Trodal's last day. And so uh, we love being Americans, but we're not always happy with Uncle Sam when he takes our friends away. Um, but so I wanted you all to know that, that uh, uh, Aaron and Heather will be uh, moving on. And uh, so if you uh, you'll need to take the opportunity today to give them a hug and uh, and say goodbye to them. We uh, love them. We will miss them. And um, so it's a sad, uh, sad time. But uh, we know that uh, the Lord will bless them uh, when they move on. And uh, Lord willing, they will be joining the Amoses in Japan in six or so months. So that'll be a fabulous thing. And um, so uh, God bless them as they go and take opportunity to go and uh, say goodbye to them, to tell them you love them and uh, uh, hug them, pray with them, pray for them. You've got your Bible open to Romans chapter 6, and uh, we have been out of Romans for some time, and uh, that, that was a, a nice little break in some way, but in other ways I was just chomping at the bit to get back into Romans, and so I'm excited to uh, be here today. I'm going to read for us starting at the end of chapter 5, kind of to get back up to speed, and then all the way through chapter 6 and verse 4. Chapter 5 and verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer together before we jump into our sermon, but I wanted to uh, alert you to another of our uh, dear military families who has moved on. The uh, Duncans are in Arizona now, and we got a text this morning from uh, Scott who um, asked that we pray for uh, a person, a man who is suicidal, and Scott is at the hospital with him right now. And, uh, and with his, with this man's mom, et cetera. So Scott asked if we would pray in this, uh, in this time for this family and for this man. So we're going to do that now as well as ask the Lord's blessing on our time with his word. So let's pray. Father, we are amazed that we who are such people can come into your presence, that we get to have access to your throne room to speak to you, to bring our requests, and you listen. Father, we worship you this morning. 
we bow down to you and give you honor. We remind ourselves that there is no God like you. You are our creator and our sustainer and you're our redeemer. And so we pause from our lives to worship you together, to bow down together, to honor you. And we praise you for this opportunity on a Sunday morning to be together, gathered together. We don't have uh, fear of persecution or a virus that's going to take us out. Or we, we have been blessed and we rejoice and we praise you that we get to be together on a Sunday morning and we have your word in front of us. We have our brothers and sisters around us. We have your Holy Spirit living within us. And so we praise you for this opportunity this morning. And Father, we ask that you would bless our time. We ask that you would speak to us from your word by your spirit, that we would learn from you, that we would hear from you, and that you would cause us to be sensitive to you. Thank you that you have given us the book of Romans. Thank you that you have given us this chapter and this topic we get to discuss today. We ask that you would do your work in us. And Father, we think of uh, this man at uh, the hospital right now who is uh, struggling with um, all the things that he's struggling with. I don't, I don't know what they are. But it has driven him to the point where he is considering taking his own life. And, and uh, I pray that you would keep him from doing that. I pray that, that he would find hope in Christ despite what his life circumstances may be. I thank you that Scott Duncan is there who will proclaim the truth of the gospel, who will present hope in Christ regardless if this man knows you or does not know you. I pray that you would bless their conversation. I pray that you would draw this man's eyes to you, that he would find hope in you. Father, we, we get to be here at this place at this time with our Bibles open and singing together and worshiping you in this way and here this man is struggling in such a way i pray pray that you would redeem him i pray that you would help him i pray that you would work by your spirit in his heart and use scott as your instrument thank you that he's there pray that you'd bless this man's mom and help her as she uh, wrestles with her son's condition father we do have this time and we do have this opportunity for the next few minutes And so we ask that you would work. We ask that you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are starting Romans chapter 6, and uh, we're transitioning. Some of you will be happy to know that because we've had a lot of theology at this point. By the way, we're not done with the theology. It will continue, and it will continue in earnest for several more chapters. However, we have uh, come to a place where we begin the discussion of sanctification, practical outworking in our lives of what it means to be a Christian. We've talked about the uh, doctrines that have uh, that have to do with our condemnation, our sin. We've seen that from all the way back in chapter 1 and uh, through about the middle of chapter 3. We've, we've seen very strong language making it clear our own guilt, our own position before God, and that it is a desperate one, that every 
every person is born in sin and they exhibit this sin in different ways and, and this sin is, is theirs by inheritance and by choice and, and it's, it's been imputed to them from Adam and it's a bad situation that we read about for all those chapters. And then, of course, in the middle of chapter 3, we have this great transition from, from those, those topics of discussion about our sin and the guilt that we have because of it. And, we, and uh, Paul began to discuss justification. Just how it can be. How can it possibly be that God could take a people who are so unrighteous with such an unrighteous inheritance, such unrighteous hearts, such unrighteous behavior, living amongst such unrighteous people. How could God take such people and reconcile them to himself? How can he give them righteousness? And so, of course, from about the middle of chapter 3 all the way up until the conclusion of chapter 5, Paul has been laying out for us very clearly and from different perspectives and thoroughly just exactly how it is that someone who is such a sinner can be declared righteous before God. And so that's the topic of justification that we have spent several months talking about, except for this last couple of uh, months that we've taken off for uh, Christmas time, etc. But this topic of justification, how how is it that God can be merciful in such a way to people who deserve God's wrath? And we saw, of course, spelled out that it was because of Jesus. That it's because of what Jesus himself has accomplished that God can have this mercy on us. And because of Jesus' active obedience, his righteousness before God, because of his obedience to God, we now who have faith in Christ can have that obedience credited to our account. And likewise, Jesus, who himself was innocent, went to the cross and died in the place of sinners, paying the penalty for sin that was not his own. We who have faith in Christ can now have that forgiveness applied to our account. So that we have our sin dealt with, forgiven in Christ. And we have righteousness credited to us in Christ. And thus, we stand before God as those who are righteous in His sight. We have been declared so by God. And so, we've been talking about justification. And, and He has hammered it again and again. And He's talked about examples from the Old Testament and about how Abraham knew about this and David knew about this. And this shouldn't be something new. This doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Which brings us to our question today, our topic today. What's the relationship between the grace of God and what he's done for us and sin in my life as a Christian? We have dealt so thoroughly at length with the guilt, the the problems, the, the consequences before God of our sin, the, the fact that we do have this guilt, we do have this debt before Him, how can it be dealt with? Well, it's dealt with by Christ. Well, even if our sin is forgiven, even if our sin in the past is wiped away, we still have zero righteousness to commend us to God. So what do we do? Well, he's dealt at length with the fact that Jesus was actively obedient. He was himself obedient to God so that he has righteousness to give to us. 
So our sin has been dealt with, it's been put away, and now righteousness by faith in Christ has been credited to our account. But that's all judicial. That's all the courtroom. That's all about our legal standing before God. And so the question on our minds is, what about the day-to-day life? Because I have to live today. And I have to live tomorrow. What about my sin? What... What am I to understand from these doctrines, from this justification? How how am I to live? What am I to understand should be my condition and how I live now? That's where he turns today. And so, that's why I read for you verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5. He's giving the conclusion. He's kind of summarizing in very tight fashion what he's been arguing, particularly what he's been arguing in the second half of chapter 5. But he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Does this surprise you that sin was meant to increase? There is a purpose statement there. Now the law came in to increase the trespass for the purpose of increasing the trespass. That might surprise us. But he's saying here sin increases and sin reigns. It might surprise us that he says, actually that was the intent of the giving of the law. That was one of the intentions. The law came in to increase, with the result that it would increase the trespass. Well, I thought law would be given to curb trespass. Doesn't it make sense that law would be given to teach people how to behave? To show them how to behave so that they can calm things down and not make things worse? But he says here, the law came in to increase the trespass. Paul refers to this later on in chapter 7. He's going to give us that very famous lines there about coveting. I mean, he says in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. You see, when law is given, we don't respond by obeying it. Yeah, maybe, maybe speed limits, maybe laws of society because they make things easier for us or whatever. But, but the law of God given to us that speaks right down to our heart, that tells us you can't do that, you must do this, well, we rebel against that. We don't like that at all. We don't want anything to do with that. And so Paul says, even regarding coveting, he says, what did the commandment about not coveting do in my own heart? Well, it kind of caused me to think, well, what, why shouldn't I covet? Maybe I want to try this coveting thing. And so you see that sin welled up into greater and greater coveting. And so wherever the law went, sin increased. Sin abounded. And that's what Paul is saying here in chapter 5 and verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass. And he says in 21, sin reigned in death. What a a terrible situation. What a dark situation, an uncomfortable 
situation where you have sin increasing and growing stronger and getting bigger and reigning. He says, sin reigned in death. Something we're told often, maybe in counseling situations, maybe in grieving situations, that death is a natural part of life is not true. It's not true. Death is the natural part of life in this sinful world. Death is the result of sin. Not, 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 not that the person who died sinned, but result of sin being in the world and us being sinners. Part of the result, the wages of sin, is death. And so when death happens, and it happens, of course it happens to everyone, but when it happens, it's not a natural part of life. It's a natural part of sinful life. And so sin reigns. And where does sin reign? Well, wherever death reigns. That's everywhere. And so you have this terrible situation of sin increasing and sin reigning. But Paul says, secondly, grace super increases and reigns. Where, where sin increases and, and gets bigger and, and grows in its reign, grace super increases and reigns. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace superabounded. Grace outdid it. Grace showed itself to be even greater and even larger and even more powerful and even more effective. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign. And so we have grace super increasing and reigning. You see, the more sin piled up, when it says the law came in to increase the trespass, the more sin piled up, the larger a foe it became to God. And God let it pile up. God let that, that foe get bigger and bigger in order that His victory of grace over that sin would be seen to be all the greater. All the greater. Just as if someone were to uh, be a fighter, a boxer maybe, he, he wants to box the biggest and toughest guy to test himself. He wants to, he wants to fight the most able foe. He doesn't want to box me, okay? Because I would be no competition and that, you know, so he beat up Brennan. Great. <laughs> it's not saying much, right? But when you box the biggest and the strongest, when you fight the most frightening foe, the one who is clearly too big to be beaten, and then you beat that foe, you have demonstrated a true superiority. And so... What Paul is saying here is that sin grew and got bigger and the coming in of the law actually made it just get bigger and larger so that when God's grace triumphed over that sin, it would be seen to be even greater. It wasn't God just winning a small little battle like a boxer beating me up. You see how big that mountain of sin, you see how intimidating, you see how it's infected the entire, entire world, every generation, to every corner of the globe, bringing death after death after death after death. And the grace, grace of God 
defeats it. And thus, grace super increases. Grace abounded even more and grace reigns. Grace reigns. Where death reigned, grace reigns. That's part of the argument Paul is making here. And when grace abounds and reigns, then death is replaced by life. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whereas sin reigned and the result was death everywhere, grace reigns and the result is eternal life through Jesus. You see how Paul is pitting those two against one another. He's comparing them, contrasting them so that we can see just how great is the grace of God. And all of this, of course, is accomplished through Jesus. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that the Christian religion, the Christian faith is about Jesus. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. Well, that is the case because in eternity past, the second person of the Trinity accepted the task of redeeming a people to be worshipped or to, to worship the one true God, to redeem a people to worship the one true God. And so to that end, he became one of us, born fully human in every way that is essential to humanity, while still remaining fully God in every way that is essential to deity. He walked in perfect obedience to the Father, living under and fulfilling that law that brought death for everyone else. Thus he obeyed where Adam disobeyed and where we have disobeyed. And though he was innocent, he went to the cross to pay the penalty for Adam's sin and for our sin. And having died under the curse that Adam had earned, he was buried and then raised from the dead on the third day. Sin and death had been defeated. And now, having been raised, he returned to his place to heaven. And there, from there, he sends the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who raised him from the dead, to give new life to those who are in him by faith. And even now, it's not over. Even now, Jesus himself continues his ministry in heaven, interceding on our behalf continuing to intercede for us. And his intercession is so effective that he will lose none of those that the Father has given to him. So it's all about Jesus. It's all about what he has accomplished and what he has done. And thus, Paul finishes that chapter by talking about this eternal life that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's all great news. That's, a, that's his summary of this doctrine of justification. He's, he's gone back over it. He's, he's reviewed it, which, of course, raises an objection. Raises an objection, you see, in verse 20 there. If, if where sin increased, grace abounded, that raises a question to the mind of some people. Chapter 6 and verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So if, if the presence of sin and the increase of sin brought a greater increase of grace, maybe more sin on our part will show the grace of God to be even greater. Shall we say that? Well, this, is, this represents two kinds of lines of argument here, reasoning. 
One is by the antinomian. This is an antinomian distortion of grace. And most of you don't care about antinomianism. But you need to know the term, okay? Anti or is like against and, and nomos meaning law. Someone who is against the law. They are anti-law. The antinomian believes God has no expectations whatsoever. He does the stuff. He does the redemption. He gives us salvation. And there is no expectation of obedience to any law on our part. It's good to be us. We have benefited. We have received. And there's no expectation of obedience. That's antinomianism. Okay? I read one, one commentator referred to a, somebody who said about, about antinomianism. Well, God likes to forgive sin. And I like to sin. So the world is beautifully arranged. Right? That's the concept of antinomianism, right? And so the antinomian who, who has heard Paul's argument, the person who really does read this and think, okay, therefore God requires nothing. God expects nothing. God doesn't care about my obedience. He just wants to give me this gift and that's it. That person really does listen to Paul's argument and say, well, you know, if, if more sin led to God's grace being glorified even more, then why don't I sin some more so that God can be glorified even more? That's the antinomian argument. It sounds, maybe it sounds crazy on the surface of it, but not, not really. And there are a lot of people who believe this way. Antinomianism. It's a, dis, a, a distortion of what grace is. Secondly, this same argument is a legalistic objection to grace. On the other side, you have the people who think, well, God is the one who gave the Ten Commandments and the law, and he has expectations that we do certain things. Therefore, he must have it in his mind that in order for us to be acceptable to him or to remain acceptable to him, we must follow certain steps. We must do certain things. This person relies upon the law. This person thinks the law has been given in order for us to please God and thus receive salvation or Having received salvation, the law has been given in order for us to please God and thus remain in his good favor. You see, it's all about law for them. And so when this person hears what Paul is saying, their first objection is, but, but what about obedience? Paul, we're supposed to be obedient. What, do you think you can just keep on sinning so that grace can abound? That's terrible, Paul. That's the legalistic objection to Paul's argument. And by the way, we each of us, in our heart, each is either a legalist or an antinomian. We have, we have a response when we hear the gospel. Each of us thinks about this and we think, yeah, I, I know I'm not supposed to sin, but I'm not really sure why, because it sure seems like we received a, a great gift and it can't be taken away, so why not just do what I want? A lot of us are antinomian at heart. A lot of us are legalist, legalist at heart. A lot of us think, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, salvation's free, but I've, I've got to maintain it in some way. I've got to do the right things or else either it'll be taken away or God won't be happy with me or I'll be a second-class citizen in heaven or that's the legalist response. See, we all are either antinomian or legalist. And fortunately for us, Paul clarifies what he means. We have a clarification of grace in verse 2. 
He says, by no means, God forbid, may it never be. It can't be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? There's probably a question mark there in your Bible, but it is a rhetorical question. If we straighten out the figure of speech, what he means is, we who have died to sin cannot live in it. He, he's not saying should not. He says cannot. It can't be the case. It's not possible. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We who died to sin cannot, are not able, cannot live in it. And I thought long and hard about how best to illustrate this. This is, Paul's talking about identity. Paul is talking about place of origin. He's talking about what sphere do we live in? And, and I was, it occurred to me last night that it's almost February, which means my passport is almost expired. That's terrible for someone who likes to travel. But I remembered back when I got my passport, which was 10 years ago, and I was in Moscow, in Russia, and we were about to travel, and so I had to go up to, I had to, had to fly from Krasnodar up to Moscow, and I had to uh, do, submit paperwork at the embassy, etc. And I had to go in and out of the embassy, and for someone who had been in Russia for a while, it was a very comforting thing to go, you know, to walk up to the embassy and show my passport, go right on in, Right. I saw familiar, you know, military fatigues in there and there was a USA Today on the table and it was very comforting, right? After someone, after, you know, been trying to live in Russia all this time. Because I was a U.S. citizen, I felt like I was such a privileged person. You know, this great big embassy and, you know, all these Russians standing outside and, you know, I go right on in and it was great. But imagine, imagine if I had renounced my citizenship. Imagine that I had given up my passport. And I had become a citizen of another country. And I had given up my U.S. citizenship. And then, imagine going in there. Well, there might be ways that you could make appointments and get in and whatnot. I don't know. But it wouldn't be the same as me doing this thing and showing my passport and walking in. I had, as a citizen, I had certain rights and privileges. That was my home. That was my realm. The law applied to me in a special way there. I stepped into the United States out of Russia when I did that. It was wonderful. It was wonderful, but if I had given up my citizenship, if I was no longer a citizen, I wouldn't have those same rights and privileges. I, I would be foreign. That, that place would be foreign to me now. I wouldn't be welcomed in in the same way. I'd probably have to make some kind of appointment. I'd, I'd have to have an appointment and, and, and may, maybe even not receive it. I don't know. I, I haven't done that, and I never would do that, and I, I haven't researched what the legalities of it. But if I had given up my citizenship and actually given up my passport, actually changed my citizenship, I belong to another country. I don't have the same relationship with my old country. I don't just get, get to go in. The, the, the military fatigues of the guys inside wouldn't be comforting anymore because they're there to watch me. They're there to keep me on my toes. And that's sort of what's going on here. The, the doctrine that Paul has been talking about is that we were born in sin, we were born in Adam, and all the things that come with that, including condemnation, including death, that's all a part of us being born in Adam, our first father. But when we are reborn, when we are placed into Christ, when we trust in Him, we have a new father. We have a new identity. 
We have a new citizenship. And now my identity is in Christ. My citizenship is in heaven. He is my father. I'm identified as him. My citizenship, much more than having been renounced, has been changed forever and ultimately and perfectly. So that I am now in Christ, I'm identified with Him. And that's the basis, that's the foundation for the argument that He is making here. And so when He clarifies in verse 2 and He says, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's saying your citizenship has changed. Your identity has changed. You are now in Christ. Even if you wanted to, you wouldn't get to go back to that. Your citizenship and identity have changed. You have a new father. You are a new person. You are now in Christ. You see, Paul's argument here is not just a statement that well, when, now that we talk about justification by faith, God no longer cares about sin. God doesn't care. He just is handing out get-out-of-jail-free cards to whoever wants one. And that's really all he's concerned about now is getting as many of these cards handed out as possible. And what Paul is saying is that God is righteous, and therefore he can't just overlook sin. He can't just ignore it any more than a judge in court can ignore the evidence, ignore someone's guilt and just say, well, you know, I kind of like the guy, so I'll let him go. And that would be a corrupt judge. And God is a righteous judge. And so there is sin and the sin must be dealt with. And so he does so in Jesus. He deals with Adam's sin, Adam's sin that is in us. And by faith in Christ, we are transferred into Christ. And so, he spells that out a little bit more in, in his argument in verses 3 through 4. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He mentions, first of all, Christ's death and ours. Christ's death and ours. Do you not know? Are you not ignorant? Are you ignorant that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? He's not, he's not just drawing an analogy. He's not saying, well, it's as if, kind of like I pulled up the, the analogy of the embassy. That, that's an analogy and it falls apart if you press it too far. He's not making an analogy. He's drawing a causal relationship between what happened with Christ and what happened to us. And he says... In highlighting Christ's death, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We had a baptism last week. 
And we made clear in the baptism last week that the, the dunking in the water, the going under the water doesn't accomplish something. There's nothing. The person wasn't reborn because we put them under the water and pulled them back up. It's a picture of something that has happened. What Christ has already done. And when we are baptized into Christ Jesus, we are saying, I'm identified with him. I believe in him. I am in him. And that's what he's saying here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And there is a causal relationship. Jesus died to sin. He died under the punishment of sin. He actually did die. Well, is the person who has died to sin still alive to sin? No, they've died to it. Well, what about us? We who have been placed into Christ, we have a death on our record, on our account, where we have died to sin. It no longer has dominion over us. It no longer has claim over us. The penalty has been paid. We have died to sin. It's not our master. That's not our identity anymore. Not just because we, 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 won't, we won't think about that. Or we, we should keep in mind, uh, you know, pretend like it has no more mastery over us and fake it till we make it. The fact is, we who are in Christ have been set free because we've died to sin. We who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And so that death is on our record. So Christ's death and ours, Christ's death affects ours. Christ's death causes our death to sin. This comes back to the topic that is big in chapter 5 of federal headship. We are included in him. And what he has done counts for us. His death counts for us. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So Christ's burial and ours is the second point. We were just as dead as him. He was dead enough so that those there whose professional job it was to make people dead identified and recognized that he was dead and buried him. It was real. It wasn't imaginary. He didn't swoon. And we, by faith in Christ, were included in that. A real, true, genuine, all the way death to sin. Not a psychological trick. Not something that we have to pretend it's true until we begin to live like it. It is a fact. We were buried with him into death. So we who are in Christ, we have that death and we have that burial credited to us. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that. In order that. That's a purpose statement. The reason, the things he's, he's accomplishing, what he's after, why this is so important, why it's important for us to know. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he talked about Christ's death and ours, Christ's burial and ours, and now Christ's resurrection and ours. The purpose is that just as Christ was raised from the dead, which is miraculous, human, humanly speaking, naturally speaking, it's impossible. It cannot be. And yet God did it. He raised Jesus from the dead. 
And we were buried with Jesus in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, probably a reference to the power of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what has been credited to our account? We tend to think of the resurrection of Christ as guaranteeing our future resurrection. After death at some point in the future, thousands of years, hundreds of years, dozens of years from now, we think about resurrection happening then. His resurrection, his resurrection does guarantee such a resurrection, but his, his, the guarantee we receive from His resurrection at this point is that we get to walk in newness of life. His resurrection is already credited to our account. It's already here. It's already on my account. So that I died with Him, a death to sin, all the way buried, and now raised to newness of life. Well, Brennan, I thought you were going to talk about Sanctification. And sanctification is the outworking. It's the living out of kind of the results of justification. Justification is God declaring us to be righteous before Him. And, and sanctification has to do with our practical day-to-day -day life. It's still the Holy Spirit who's at work doing it. It's still God who's at work doing it. But you see it. It happens. God changes us in our lifestyle. Well, I am talking about sanctification. One of the ways that indicates to me that that's the direction we're headed is that this is the first instance in the book of Romans where Paul has talked about how we walk. That we may walk in newness of life. That Greek word for walking has to do with lifestyle. It has to do with how we live. How we practically live our lives day to day. And he says, as a result of the resurrection of Christ, because we've died with him, we've been buried with him, and we've been raised with him, thus we walk. The goal of that is that we might walk in newness of life, practically in our lives. So he's going to spell that out. He's going to continue on fleshing out for us in 6, 7, and 8 what that looks like. But for today, I want to make just a couple of points as far as application. The first point is that how we live is based upon what we believe. The way you live your life is based upon what you believe. What you really deep down actually believe to be true, that's how you live your life. I was having a conversation uh, with an unbeliever not too long ago and, and I, I challenged him on his unbelief and he said, you don't know what I believe and I sort of you know, I said, well, I guess you're right, I don't really. But the fact is, no, you do. Because I can see it. I can see what you believe. What we believe hugely impacts how we live our lives. And so Paul has labored long and hard, and thus we have labored long and hard to have in our minds a clear understanding of what justification is and how sanctification comes out of it. How our Christian life is rooted in what we believe to be true. You see, the legalists among us, I said we're, we're all antinomian or legalists, the legalists among us really just wants to know what I should do. Just tell me what to do. The Pharisees were great at that. And Jesus opposed them at every turn. We have to know what we believe and what we believe the truth of our origins, our identities, who we are, where, where we came from, who's, who's in authority over us. 
where we're going. The truth of those things we have to hold in our minds so that we can decide how to live, so that we can know how to live. Which is where chapter 6, 7, and 8 are going. Second point of application. The true gospel works by removing the believer from the condemnation, reign, and authority of sin and relocating him purely by grace through faith into the rewards and reign and authority of Christ. If your understanding of the gospel is that you just need to change your affiliation from sin to Christ, yours is not a biblical gospel. The true gospel deals with the deepest down, most true realities of our sin, of our guilt. The gospel deals with that by giving us a new identity, by paying the penalty for those things in Christ, and by giving us the rewards that are ours in Christ. And so, my call for you this morning, if you don't know Christ, if you, if you wrestle with how the gospel could be really true because it just sounds too good to be true. God could just overlook sin and God deals with your sin in Christ. And the eternal life that is to be found in Christ can be yours by faith in Him. And you could do that this morning. You can trust in Him and you can have all of that paid for and put away and you could receive the rewards that are Christ's. And finally, Christian, your native land used to be sin, but your residency, your citizenship, and your identity have been changed. Grace is your new home. Your new identity is one who is in Christ. As one who is in Christ. And as I said in the first application point, what you believe determines how you live. So you need to know that this morning. You need to have that deep down in your mind what has happened to you and that you have a new Lord, you have a new Father, you have a new identity, you have a new citizenship in Christ. There is hope there. And there is peace there. And there is newness of life there as you have resurrection power deep inside. And so I know this has been a relatively heavy reintroduction to the book of Romans, but I wanted to bring us back up to speed and kind of set the table for, for where we're headed. What we believe about these things determines how we behave. And so it's important for us to know and understand what Paul is teaching here about our identity in Christ. And you can switch identities one direction. You can go from being in Adam and thus inheriting all that he has earned for you. By faith in Christ, you can be transferred into him and you can receive the rewards of being in Christ where your debt is paid for, where you have new life in Christ, where you have the righteousness from him credited to your account and you have peace with God. You have peace with God. And so that's, that's the call this morning is for you to put your faith in Christ and see that change happen. See your eternity changed. And that's my prayer that some of you will do that even this morning. Let's pray together.
Father, I do stand here amazed at the gospel, at what you have done for us in Christ. Father, I I rejoice that that a person uh, like me can have peace with you through Jesus. I know my I know my own guilt before you, my own unworthiness. And I'm not alone in that. And so I praise you for what you've done in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would help us even as we go out. Help us to dwell upon these things that Paul has said. That we would understand our true identity in Christ. What it means that we are in him. Not just pretending to be in Him, not just having changed affiliation, or not just taking on His name, or something like that, but that we, by faith in Christ, have been placed into Him, and thus our whole world is different. Father, I pray that You would draw people to Yourself even this morning, and I pray that uh, people would come to know You, that they would know this, this peace and this joy of what it means to be in Christ, that they would stop fighting against you, they would, they would stop running from you, that they would stop uh, rejecting you and rejecting your word, but instead they would come to you in faith and they would find peace with you. Father, we are a blessed people because we are in Christ and we rejoice and we praise your name and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, there will be a family up front to pray with you. Uh, when, when, if you would like to pray with him, otherwise God bless you all and you are dismissed.